Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 24 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. Today, we have a fascinating topic for you, which is very relevant for yogis. And that topic is interoception. And you may have heard this term before. Of course, we're going to spend the entire episode (laughs) talking about it today. But just a super quick definition. It's the awareness of the internal state of the body. But it actually encompasses a lot more than that, which we're going to get into. And the cool thing about this is that the research interest in interoception has grown immensely in the Mm -hmm. past 10 or so years. So we're on the cutting edge of this thing. Um, (laughs) And Jenny's actually done a lot of research and reading into this topic. She, uh, I mean, maybe you would have read this stuff anyway, because you're a geek, but in particular, (laughs) you read it for a continuing education course on your website called Welcome to the Brain. Mm-hmm. So uh, you're going to be our expert for the day. It's <laughs> admittedly a little bit of a newer area for me. So I'm going to be learning right alongside the our listeners today. But we're over the course of the episode, we're going to talk about, we'll first define interoception more deeply. And we'll talk about why it's so much more important than maybe a lot of people realize Then we'll talk about some myths and misconceptions about interoception, particularly in the yoga world. And we'll also talk about the connection between interoception and yoga and mindfulness techniques. And then lastly, you'll have to listen to the end for this one. We'll answer the question or at least ask the question of does yoga really improve interoception, which is the question that everybody wants to know, especially me. So... Um, Jenny, anything else that I failed to mention? No, thank you for that perfect introduction, Travis. And thank you for just like agreeing to chat with me about this today, because I know that, as you mentioned, this is definitely kind of like a field of research that I personally have put a lot of time and energy and effort into. And I, I know that it's not necessarily your area of of knowledge or expertise. So just, you know, thanks for being here for this time for this may this conversation may be a little bit more of me telling and talking, although I hope I don't want it to, you know, be all that. But I know that it's probably me presenting more information for the benefit of Travis to hear and understand and the benefit of all of our listeners and our audience. Uh, But as Travis mentioned in the intro, this topic is super fast, like inherently fascinating, very important for anybody with a body to understand and know about. But it's it's extra pertinent for us as yogis or or anybody with like any form of mindfulness or contemplative style practice. Uh, So I just think it's it's super relevant to um, to what so many of us in this kind of community do. 
And, you know, the reason that I put together the course that Travis mentioned, which is called um, Welcome to Your Brain, new ner- the full title, Welcome to Your Brain, New Nervous System Essentials for Yogis, something like that. Because a lot of this information is relatively new. As Travis mentioned, like uh, research interest in interoception has really grown kind of especially within the past decade. So there's a lot of newer information coming out than many of us if we ever did learn about interoception at all, if we've even heard the term, there's probably a lot more newer information today that's out there um, beyond what we may have learned before. And just as a little background for kind of the resources that I've used in in putting this information together, both for the course, which is this continuing ed course on my website that anybody who can, anyone can take for CE credit if they're a, a website member. Or uh, on a seven-day trial. Thank you. That's right. All memberships on the website start with a free seven-day trial, including our Strength for Yoga membership. It's true. And the that course in particular is three hours and change, right? I think you're right. Yeah. So we're just going to that's right. Fly, fly through to get it in, in the duration of a podcast. But yeah, we. I guess we're not going to be able to cover, certainly not going to cover everything in the, the course. You're totally right. Yeah, I've just tried to pick out kind of just some of the more uh, main points from that course, but it's certainly not like the thorough presentation. But we just, we don't have time in this in this context. And it's really more, I think, better for like a course where you're sitting down and you're really going to study and learn. But just just a little background uh, is um, I've looked, you know, well, first of all, the reason that I, one of the reasons I think this topic is so important is some of our listeners might know, but like Travis and I are... I I guess I'd say we're pretty up to date and interested in the topic of pain science and more and more people in the yoga world are starting to learn about kind of like the modern version of pain science and the science of pain. Although I feel like, you know, there's still a long way to go for it to actually be common knowledge, both in the yoga world and just in the world in general. Like we're really pretty behind the, behind the times as far as insights for modern pain science go. Yeah. I mean, everybody is. Right. And and the physical therapy world, which yeah. you're super plugged into, Travis. Right? I mean, they're just... Yeah. Let, let alone the personal training. Let alone personal training. Yeah. So like when I first learned about the topic of pain science, um, that like completely changed so much for me in terms of how I see the body, how I see a yoga and movement practice, and for and certainly just how I see pain in general. But it was probably the biggest, I'd say, paradigm shift for me in terms of of um, approaching the body in general was learning about pain science. And, um, you know, for me, that's been a several year process and I'm always, you know, I have a course on the website that's pain science for yogis too, because, because I think it's such a crucial topic, but this interoception science, it basically like encompasses pain science, but then it's so much more than that. So this was maybe like a second paradigm shift that I've gone through or I'm currently going through. It's like a big, big meaty topic. Um, there is, so just a, so any reading you do on pain science, I think would be helpful for understanding some of this interoception science. And I've done a lot for, uh, that informed the course that I made. And then also, um, just interoception science. There's also a lot of science on interoception and mindfulness specifically, because of course, interoception can apply to just broadly across fields, but there's a lot that's been done on interoception and mindfulness, which we're going to kind of talk about today. There's an amazing um, psychology 
a, psych a psychology researcher and neuroscience researcher who's named Lisa Feldman Barrett. And I love her. And I've learned a ton through her work, not only her books, but also her actual research articles. And then my husband, Craig Rawlings, who we've mentioned on the podcast a few times, he's actually a sociologist at Duke University, a sociology professor with a specialty in um, social psychology, and he knows a lot about cognition. He's also a huge Lisa Feldman Barrett fan and knows her work as well. So I would also say I've had the benefit of having like a live-in, super knowledgeable person on all these topics as well. So I'm, I've talked to Craig so much about all this stuff, and he's also helped. So it's kind of all of those sources that have influenced what I put together for the course on my website and, and what we'll be talking about today. We'll, we'll make Craig third author on this one, <laughs> which is yeah, actually the most absolutely. prominent position. So oh, in, you told me that before, in, Travis. And research. Well, yeah, it's I like tied with the before. first. Yeah. So, so in research papers, there are many, oftentimes many authors and basically the first and the last ones are the most prominent roles. So the first one is the person who did the most but the last one is like the senior author. So it's usually, okay, Travis Pollan might have done his research study as a, a doctoral student or a early career faculty member, but it was in the laboratory of someone else who mentored. Mm. So in this case, you know, your first author on the, <laughs> on the podcast and right? I'm middle author. I shouldn't get much credit because I probably didn't do much work. And then- you Dr. Rawlings would be Dr. Rawlings, the senior my husband. author. Yeah. Oh, you're I think that's a perfect can, way to look at it. Just let him know that he can put it on his CV. Right. Okay. Yeah. I'll that's hilarious. Uh, I will tell him that he will love that. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to lay out a little background and um, yeah, and just foundation for, you know, I'm, I'm not just like coming up with this stuff off the, on the fly. Like I've done, like, these are the types of sources I've consulted for putting together this stuff. That's that's comical that you would, but I feel like that is what some people do. Just like <sighs> make stuff up about, especially about this topic, like the brain. Yes. And, oh, that's you know. so true. I mean, how many myths out there are there about the brain, right? Yeah. That we've talked about on the podcast before, right? Like neuromyths. We've, yeah, we've covered a lot. And actually some of these things that we've talked about before may come up in today's conversation as well, but there, there are huge misunderstandings about the brain and how the brain functions. And in the yoga world, it's very widespread. There's a lot of outdated information about the brain. That's why I made the whole course. Welcome to your brain, like new nervous system insights, like let's get up to speed with current research and stop recycling these old outdated models and myths because they're, yeah. they're way too prevalent. Yeah, I guess you hope that people are either confused or looking at outdated information as opposed to just making stuff up. But you know. <laughs> Right. That's a great point. You're kind of talking about, yeah, yeah. Not just using outdated information, but actually making stuff up that's not necessary. Yeah, like there's no source for it. They're just saying it because it feels like it makes sense to them or something. That sounds right. So that's not that's not what we did. That's exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you gave us a definition for what interoception is in the introduction, which uh, you, what did you say that it was, Travis? I said it is the awareness of the internal state of the body. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? 
And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. That's right. So that's kind of just like a super summarized definition for like what interoception is. That's like the Cliff's Notes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like when you haven't read the book, but you go on the website, <laughs> you get that right. and you're like, all right, I'm ready for the test. <laughs> exactly. And maybe you could like get a couple answers right or something. But yeah, I don't, you understand it at just that very surfacey level or whatever. So it's kind of a summarized definition for what interoception is. Um, I thought we could take a little step back and this is just super brief and oversimplified, but just take a look at like where interoception fits in with the bigger picture of your nervous system and your brain and how that, so your brain is part of your nervous system. Um, and the brain is basically what's in charge of monitoring and regulating and just uh, continually, yeah, regulating all the processes of your body. So it just basically basically keeps everything functioning and flowing, all the subsystems of the body. In in your course, you have a like a list on one of the one of the slides that's like a long list of processes, but it's only like a, a very small subset. You're so. How did you know that? I I <laughs> may you, have. Maybe I showed you a slide or something. I may have. Wait, did you? In the course. You did the welcome to your brain course. Maybe. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I did not know that you did that. Wow. Okay. So yeah, so the, you're right. The list is like uh, what, what yeah, you could like of all off. the processes that yeah, the, yeah. that the brain and the nervous system are coordinating. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just so much. It's like your cardiovascular system. It's like sending blood through your blood vessels. It's your respiration, like your breathing. It's digestion digesting the food um, that you uh, that you consume, it's regulating like your body's temperature, you know, if it's, if the, ex the environmental temperature shifts a little bit, then your brain will sense that and make all these uh, autonomic, like autonomic physiological changes in the body to to regulate and to keep your inner core at a constant Mm -hmm. temperature that's something we talked about in another podcast episode remember yeah about yeah. hot yoga cold yoga and the science of body temperature <laughs> like it's all related right like all this stuff is yeah well the, i think the cool point too there is like so much of that is happening in our subconscious right or we're, we're not yes. we aren't having to control all of those things all the time some of them we can get under conscious control others we can't right that's right that's right yeah just so the it's doing so much all the time and it's in, mostly in the background. 100%. But just to give an appreciation for how much our brain is constantly doing in the background beneath our level of awareness. Like we can't, we don't actively sense or feel tons of that stuff. I mean, we wouldn't, <clears throat> we've evolved not to because it would just be so distracting. Sensory overload, if you, yeah. Ex if you felt or everything Maybe sensory on. is not the right word because that's like a- Why not? Well, I guess. Yeah. But like just overload. Yes. It could, it could be. I want, I just, I said, why Maybe not? Sensory would be the were... right word. Yeah. Well, sensory overload. It's like a, it's like a pop culture term. I feel that's right. I feel like people refer to it more. They mean more like in the outer world. Right. I think yeah. Usually when they say that. Yeah, exactly. And this would be like an inner sensory overload. 
Exactly. Which I think we often don't even realize. Like there's, there's so much going on inside of us that we, you know, potentially that could sense, but we don't thankfully. And, um, and mm -hmm. instead, instead, uh, and it's just like with the outer world as well. It's like sense, senses come in from like all these, I think we often think about sense, the senses being our body's relationship to the outside world. You know, what we see, what we hear, what we touch. Yeah. Well, those are like the five senses the five that we senses. all think about, right? Yeah. Vision, hearing, touch, smell, taste. I think those are the five. Yeah. Sometimes, that we learn. am I making this up as we just talked about that art? Do sometimes people talk about a sixth? They do sometimes talk about a sixth. And I think that that sixth is, uh, you know, it's called different things. I, when I first learned about, well, this is a good, I'm actually was planning to talk about this anyway, oh, in this, about this moment. When I first learned about proprioception, I was taught that that was your body's sixth sense. So maybe I should take a quick step back and we can define proprioception yeah. and, and then, what that then is. We can go back to wherever we were when I interrupted you. <laughs> Which I'm not even sure that I, no, you're, this is perfect. Um, cool. I yeah, think, yeah, it, this is huge because right. the, the differentiation between interoception and proprioception. And proprioception, exactly. People maybe often think they're the they same. Get, it's confusing, yeah. I personally, when I learned, you know, learned about, started studying the body and movement and the nervous system, proprioception was what I first learned about. People talk heard, about it, yeah. 100%. It's more out there. It's more out there. And I, I definitely even see that in the yoga world, like in yoga teacher training, some of them, more science interest ones, geeky ones, we'll definitely talk about proprioception, but maybe just like a, t just a slight little glance or a tiny mention of interoception, you know, but, but you'll, as you'll see, interoception is so much more. So basically proprioception is, uh, it's classically defined as, uh, your nervous system's abil ability to sense your body's position in space. So how your joints are positioned, just how your body is, is put together. That's proprioception. And generally, you know, like for example, really accomplished dancers or really accomplished yogis, I think we could say too, um, people who just move their body in a way we might just describe as like, wet. they move really well. They have really good fine tuned control. They know where the very tip of their fourth finger on their left hand is in any moment, if they need it, if they need to sense that or whatever. They just have a good proprioception. They can move, uh, they sense their body in space well. Mm -hmm. As opposed to if you were like clumsy and yeah. clunky and, you know, like ran into things a lot or that would, what, be, that would be not so good. Yeah, I was going to say, what are the consequences of having poor proprioception? Yeah, I, um, I would think it would be those kinds of things like maybe moving through your world a little clumsily. I, uh, proprioception plays a big part in balance. Mm -hmm. It's huge in balance. So if you are poor, had poor, poor proprioception, uh, you may have poor balance, and that becomes more of an issue as people get older. Yeah, and fall, trip and fall, and then. And the, I mean, maybe we talked about this before, but as far as balance goes, and like the the visual system, mm -hmm. and then the what's the other one? Vestibular so system. Yeah, that's the one mm -hmm. in the inner <laughs> so, ear. Yeah, and so you can, you know, if you close your eyes then that forces you to yep. rely more on the vestibular system and more on your proprioception. That's right. Uh, versus, or yeah, so you can, you can like manipulate these things from a balancing standpoint. So if That's you, right. if you, you could have poor proprioception, but you, you can rely on your eyes maybe. Um, but if it's dark or, yeah. or whatever, uh, or if you have an inner ear condition, you know, that, that That's could sort right. of bounce off. 
And then alternatively, if you wanted to challenge your proprioceptive system, you could put yourself on an unstable surface and that, mm -hmm. you know, you still have your eyes and your, your vestibular system, but now the proprioceptive input coming from the ground is different. That's right. Um, so it's more it, of a challenge. It's unstable or yeah. That's right. Yeah. So balance is kind of made up of those three core um, foundations. And so, yeah, you can, you can enhance or emphasize any one of them to help train balance and and yoga is really good for training balance and improving proprioception. Mm -hmm. uh, so proprioception, that's what that is. And then we have um, extraoception. Travis, have you heard of that term before? Extraoception? You know what? No. <laughs> you haven't? I mean, uh, in like the, the five minutes before we got on recording, yeah. But I like up until this point, I really had not heard that term before. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, so... Uh, when I first learned about this stuff, I learned about three. I learned about extraception, proprioception, and interoception. Or not, I said I learned about proprioception first when I first started learning about this stuff. But once I looked into it more, I learned about these three, this three-pronged model for basically how mm -hmm. the nervous system senses your body in the world. Um, and extraception is basically your nervous system sense of your external world, everything outside the body. So the environment that you're in, the temperature, uh. you're, the sights that are around you, like what's in the physical space, uh, the, the sensation of um, if you're sitting in a chair, like the sensation of your skin touching the chair, what that feels like. It's like your, relation, your body's relationship to the outside world. So that's that makes extra. makes a ton of sense. Doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the, yeah I guess yeah. the interesting thing is like when you're talking about sitting in a chair, that's like the interface between the outer exterior world and the the internal 100%. environment of your body, right? And I love how you so so traditionally, we've understood the difference between extraoception and interoception, which we've defined that's like your sense of your inner state. Traditionally, that's been thought of the dividing line between those was the skin. You know, it's mm -hmm. like what's underneath the skin, that's interoception. What's outside the skin is extraoception. Okay. But what current research seems to be suggesting and what current definitions of um of these terms suggest is that like that boundary of the skin between the two is actually pretty blurry and that our brain doesn't necessarily have a great sense of inner versus outer it's really just trying to get a sense of just kind of everything as a whole it's just trying to you know, just trying to represent your body in the world in this one picture. And it doesn't okay. necessarily like I've seen the example of if you get in a car and start driving around, then your nervous system kind of considers your whole like that whole container of the car is like you and outside the car is not you, you know, Whoa. so like that, that boundary line can change depending on what you're doing. That's fascinating. So right? I, it sounds like we've we've created these categories, yes. but they're not as um, discreet. Distinct. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. And I think, yes, exactly. So that three-pronged model of how the nervous system senses the body, I believe it, I mean, people still talk about it, but it's maybe becoming a little outdated. It dates back to this like 1906 paper by Sherrington wow. when that researcher first presented it, like like how, how over a hundred years ago. Did you read that one? Yeah, I've looked at it, but I have not wow. read that one thoroughly. Yeah, but I'm the aware old, of like tons of research like sites that. that. Yeah. Yeah, right. Super interesting. So yeah, so that three-pronged model, we still hear about it today, but it's it's like really those distinctions between the three are becoming, um, they're not so important, it seems like with modern neuroscience understanding, and that the term interoception, uh, 
which we defined as like your sense of your inner state, inner bodily state, actually in like current research papers, interoception seems to encompass um, proprioception as well. Like proprioception is often lumped in with interoception these days. It's not even like necessarily this distinct third. It's just like part of interoception. And another quick thing I just want to back up and mention is that um, interoception originally, when it was originally proposed, I believe by Sherrington back in 1906, he defined it as uh, your nervous system sense of your viscera. And so mm -hmm. your viscera, do you know what the viscera is? <laughs> Internal what, what organs, right? Precisely, your internal organs. So originally it was the super limited definition of just how your nervous system sensed your internal organs. So all the abdominal viscera and your heart and your lungs and your brain and all of that, all that gets lumped together. And that's all that interoception was, was proposed to be back then. And I think maybe when I first learned about interoception, that's the definition I learned. And I bet that if, I bet most of our listeners, if they've ever learned about interoception, if they even have, that's probably the def, likely one, like a definition they learned is it's just your, your nervous system sense of the internal organs so that it can keep them all functioning well, right? But today the term interoception includes a lot more than that. So it includes sensation of your viscera for sure, but it also includes uh, the pro, all of your proprioception. So all of that. It also includes a certain touch. So not necessarily, from what I understand, not necessarily all touch, but like light touch, it like light touch across the skin mm -hmm. is technically considered interoception. And then thermal, so temperature, I mentioned temperature uh, earlier, that's mm -hmm. also like your body's ability to sense your inner temperature and your outer temp uh, temperature in the external world outside of you. That's also interoception. Uh, pain, pain is also in the realm of interoception in these updated models of what interoception is. Um, so it's just kind of all of that. And it's actually more, it's also emotions, like how you feel. Uh, that's also interoception. So isn't that crazy? It's just how everything. All, it basically is. Everything it except exteroception. That's right. But then by some definitions, it's just like that boundary is, is kind of blurred, you know, and <laughs> right. it's kind of crazy. But yeah, yeah. So interoception kind of encompasses today in the most up-to-date research that I've seen, it seems to encompass everything I just mentioned. But you're right. You're totally right, except extraoception. Um, kind of crazy. So you could kind of sum that up to say that interoception is just like this aggregate of your inner body state. And as you mentioned before, I mean, we have so much going on inside of our body all the time, all these subsystems and processes of our physiology happening all at once. And uh, we're not aware, we're not consciously aware, we like can't consciously feel all of that. Um, and what happens is that what interoception really is, is it's like this, I don't think conglomeration is the right word, but, but it's like an aggregate of all of your internal sensations, I guess we could say, lumped together into one just like base level feeling that we feel in your in our body. And that's like how we how we feel interoception generally. Um, I actually, I'm, I might be getting a little bit ahead of myself in um, in what I'm defining here, but basically, let me take let me take a quick step back. So, if interoception is this like lumped together sensation that we feel in our body, and it's like our just um, a summary of how we're sensing our body, then 
like I said, pain is interoception, um, emotions are interoception, and and that's a huge reason why interoception is so important for really for everything, but especially in a yoga context. Because if you think about this, and I remember just being really tripped out when I first learned about this, but think about emotions for a moment, you know, um, happy, sad, um, afraid, things like this, these emotions, like we mm -hmm. tend to be taught these emotion names and kind of learn what they mean. And if anything, we kind of think about them. I, I, I mean, I believe we kind of think about them as these like concrete objective categories that we embody or we don't, or we can see it in someone else. Like that person is sad and we just know that. Yeah. But that's not necessarily always true, right? That's right. Or like that's our, not... our perception of the way that uh, an emotion is manifesting may or may not be accurate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it can be different for everyone and lots of different things can come together to create an emotion. But, you gave um, a good example in the course. <laughs> I did about, not know that you peeked uh, through the course. I might have. Um, crying, right? That's right. That's so a great example. You had a really good visual with the emojis. emojis. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you could be crying because you're sad. And I think that would be the and we're thinking tears, people... right? Like that's yeah. the, the biological, um, what you see is a tear and that's like Yeah, crying. yeah. So if I see you crying, I might think you're sad. But you could also be happy, like, mm -hmm. or te yeah, tears of joy, right? That's right. You could be you so happy could... that you cry. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you're sad. <laughs> right. Or you could be uh, laughing so hard that you cry. That you cry, which or I you love could... to do. <laughs> yeah. Or you could be touched, right? That was the... That's right. Like picture um, watching a movie like and heart something. Warm, heartwarming would be. Yes. That's the, and yeah. yeah. Like I'm you watch touched. a movie and there's like a really emotionally moving part and maybe you get a tear. Or at a yeah. wedding, you get you get tears when you watch someone get married. I mean, not everyone does, but yeah. one might. You know, I never, I never distinguish that between like joy and heartwarming. But now I see it because I like to, to give a little insight into me. I remember <laughs> watching a Spanish soap opera um, as a teenager because that's just what I did. Oh, that's a, a right. I know that, that interesting fact about yeah. you is you like yeah. to watch Spanish soap operas. I like operas. to watch Spanish soap operas. And uh, I actually recently rewatched an abridged version of this one in particular. But I remember at the end, you know, I, I won't, won't spoil it for anybody. Well, I haven't even said what the name of it was. It. <laughs> yeah, all 150 episodes. But anyway, uh, you know, the, the main characters um, rekindle romance in the end, whatever. Very happy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, like I shed a tear. And yeah. um, that would be I, I, my my sense. My The reason for that would have been that I was touched. That's right, Travis. But if I took a picture of you in that moment when you were shedding a tear and I just looked at a photo of like just your face, not even anything else about you, and I just saw your mm -hmm. facial expression in a tear, I might project that you were sad in that moment. But what you really need in order to really understand what's going on for someone is you need the whole context, right? I'd need to see mm -hmm. that you were sitting there and you were watching this TV show and everything else about you and your day in that moment. That would like inform me on what was really going on for you. Mm -hmm. So this emotion stuff is actually, um, I'm not sure that I'll, we'll get too much more into it in this conversation. We do, I do talk about it in the course. And then Lisa Feldman Barrett, who I mentioned earlier, is she, that's like a huge part of her research. Um, her book, How Emotions Are Made, I highly recommend. And then her research papers 
uh, I'll talk about this or a lot of them talk we about could this as well. Link the book in the show notes, right? Yeah, for sure. We will. And she has a great paper. If anyone's interested in actually reading research is she calls it, it's called a theory of constructed emotion. I think that's what it's called. A theory of, con because basically the whole point, the whole point I said, constructed emotions, or that's the name of, of her paper title is that emotions are constructions. They're basically uh, creations of the brain in the same way that pain is also a construct. It's this, I mean, they're not the same type of perception or experience, but they have the same roots. They're both constructions put together by the brain. They're like a, a collection of perceptions or they're a perception for you to feel. And the brain helps you give meaning to those sensations or perceptions in the body. And these are literal feelings inside the body. So I think I think a few minutes ago when I was saying, when I first learned about the stuff, I was so tripped out. I remember now I kind of got off track. I was so tripped out because what I realized, I guess I just hadn't realized this before, was that when you have emotions, it's literally not separate from what you are feeling in your body. I think we label them and think of that as like a mental category, you know? or it's our psychology, I feel this, but literally that word feel, like you're feeling that as actual feelings in your actual body, like rooted in the body. I'm not sure that we often take a step back to realize that. And that is, that feeling is your interoception. Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science Podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement, which means incorporating insights from scientific research into our practice and teachings. We channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. And now back to our episode or it's our psychology, I feel this, but literally that word feel, like you're feeling that as actual feelings in your actual body, like rooted in the body. I'm not sure that we often take a step back to realize that. And that is, that feeling is your interoception. And that's so why- it's, it's the this harmonious thing that psychology and physiology are not separate, mm -hmm. but actually one. Mm -hmm. And there's a field called psychophysiology that, that looks at the relationship between the the very intimate and intertwined relationship between psychology and physiology. A hundred percent. In fact, I have a paper open in my browser from a journal called Psychophysiology. Oh, cool. And yeah. And also it's also, so we're talking about it in kind of sciencey terms, but that's also why the term oh, yeah. mind-body or mm -hmm. mind-body connections it, I mean, we use it all the time. It's fine, but it's technically it's a a yoga is a mind body practice. It is right. And meditation yeah. is a mind body practice. Oh, right. But it's a misnomer because it creates this duality mm -hmm. where it's actually one. Like we, it makes us picture um, the mind and the body as two separate things like interact. We talk about, we talk about the physical and the mental as though they're different, 
but they're actually completely integrated. It's like not separate, like ultimately. Holism, that's the oh. holism, I think is the contrasting term. So dualism oh, okay. like or duality that. is the mind body, but then holism is realizing that these things are all in interconnected. Or like holistic. Yeah, exactly. That, you mean? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, precisely. And so, yeah, mind-body practices, I mean, even the term itself is kind of setting up this distinction, but they're really not distinct. And that's why when you feel something that we may think of as in our head or like an emotion in our head or, you know, something more mental, it's actually literally physical. So what an emotion literally is like in a scientific sense is it's, a, it's an interoceptive feeling. It's literally your body state that it's typically, a, they would say like a heightened sense of inner it's like a higher it's because you you have like base level interoception that's just in the background yeah. all the time and that's i think we won't get into it in this conversation i talk about it in the course but that's actually something called affect mm -hmm. have you heard affect before travis affect. yeah i have because in one of the my textbooks they talk about the abcs of psychology so mm -hmm. a is for affect mm -hmm. b is for behavior c is for cognition oh yeah and the, Can you, those, what is those things um, sorry. what you just said, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. Um, sorry, you were going to say something. I think I think you. affect is like your thoughts. No, wait, I'm messing up. So cognition is your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Cognition is your behavior thoughts, yeah. is your actions and affect is your feelings. That's right. That's yes. right. And, um, in the Got interception, <laughs> yeah. perfect. In the interception literature, my understanding is that affect is defined more as like your base level feelings or your low okay. level. Um, it could just be summarized as like your mood basically. Mm -hmm. So it's not, so if you could kind of picture like your low level background sensations in your body, you might summarize that as your mood. And though that's just really general terms, like pleasant, unpleasant aroused, non-aroused. Those, these are kind of the technical terms. Uh, well, the really technical terms are valence and aroused. Valence is, mm -hmm. is good, bad. And yeah, um, yeah. arousal is like, I, I feel energized or not energized or stimulated or not. So it's these two general areas. And then you could put them together and make a, whatchamacallit, a two by two, mm -hmm. you know, like where you could either in any given moment, you can be any mix of those. So I might feel pleasant or good. And I also might feel stimulated or I might feel pleasant and good and not stimulated, which you might think maybe that's relaxed or something. Mm -hmm. I might feel bad. That's like low valence or really stimulated, or I could feel bad and really unstimulated, like low energy. So this is kind of these quadrants. Um, so affect, it's not, it's not emotion. Emotions are heightened sense senses of, or it, heightened instances of affect. Affect is just more your base level heart. Like right now in, in this moment, do you feel pleasant? Where do you feel unpleasant, unpleasant? And where do you feel unstimulated, unstimulated? And there's mm -hmm. some conglomeration of that. That's your affect in this moment. Affect is what you feel in your body that is your interoception. It's like, it's like the way your brain creates for you to perceive your interoception. So check this out. If you're looking through your eyes, you know, you're using your eyes to like look out at the world. What's actually coming into your eyes in that moment is light waves. It's just like light coming into your eyes. And then your photoreceptors, which are your sensory receptors in the eyes that take in light, they'll receive that light. And then they, they um, convert that into like electrical signals that goes into your brain. And then your brain takes that signal puts it in context with everything else that it knows about you in this moment. 
And then it will create for you what you actually see, which is your vision. So we've got the light waves into the photoreceptors, and then we have the output out, which is what your brain creates for you to see. And that's your vision. So there's like this important distinction. And I'm sure you've learned this before, Travis, too, with maybe you already know it anyway, but I know in pain science, this is very important, this distinction between input and output. But um, the input is like raw sensory information coming in. And the output is how your brain puts all that sensation together and then presents for you like this integrated present presentation of everything at once, all integrated. And that is your experience. And that's why, um, you know, when we see with our eyes, we're not really ever only seeing. We're also at the same time we're hearing. We're also feeling. It's like the, we tend to think of these senses as like isolated but they're really not in the way that we experience them. It's really this construction that the brain has put together to make your world meaningful for you. Does that sort of make sense? Mm -hmm. We talked about this, uh, I'm sure you'll remember, we talked about this in our episode on um, whether teaching with um, verbal cues only was superior. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. We talked, and and in in the context of that episode, we talked about this myth that there are different learning styles. Remember that because this is this is a common brain myth or neuromyth that I find really widespread in the world in general, but especially in the yoga world, in yoga teacher trainings, because they're supposed to teach people how to teach. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of in their purview to, to teach about like teaching strategies. And you'll often learn that people are visual or auditory or kinesthetic learners, these three different types. Um, and therefore, like yoga teachers should you know, use that to inform them when when they teach. But we totally thoroughly debunked that in that episode. And that's, I think, related to what we're talking about here, which is that, um, you know, your senses are always integrated instantly at once. All of your different senses, we talk about them as like taste, smell, vision, hear, like all separate. They're only separate in the way that they input in through your sensory organs. But once you actually experience them, which is the output out from the brain, it's this integrated whole. That's why no one is a visual learner. No one is an auditory learner because that's not how learning happens in the brain in an integrated sense from all available information that it's taking in. And uh, we learn through all modes, all, all of these different modes all at once. Um, does that sort of make sense? I feel like I'm kind of getting on a little, going down a little rabbit hole with that, but just to explain, right. So we've got sensory, raw sensory input in, and then we have the presentation that the brain creates for us. And that's why our emotions are constructed. That's why pain is constructed. And that's why everything that we feel in our body is really just a, a construction of what the brain is showing to us. Um, And I guess to go all the way back to affect, we were talking about affect and how that's like your low level mood you or or feeling in your body. Whenever we go through what might be called a heightened instance of affect, so we just feel more in our body, like the surge of more feeling, that's what we've learned to label as an emotion. So if you think about, um, just, just say vision, for example, if we think about how the input that goes into the brain in order um, to create your vision, that input is literally just light light waves. And light waves aren't anything that we in our mind know what to do with. Like we're just, it wouldn't make any sense. That would just be like no meaning on, a, on an experiential level. That's why our brain takes in the light waves and everything else is taking in at the same time. And it weaves it together to be your vision. And that's why vision and what you see through your eyes is like an output. 
And that's why we don't always see with our eyes. We don't always see objective reality. In fact, we never, sorry, we never see objective reality through our eyes. We always see what our brain chooses to show us. Is that also why eyewitness is not yes. <laughs> accurate? Reliable? Yeah. Totally. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. That's that's huge. Eyewitness testimony mm-hmm. is is notorious for being unreliable because people see like what their brain wants to show them. And they also remember what their brain wants them to remember. Right. So like uh, at a crime scene, they ask people not to talk to each other, right? Because after the whisper down the lane, like the reality of what people observed can be morphed based on what somebody else said. And they're like, oh, I saw that too. A hundred percent. Yes. And that, so that's, uh, that's why eyewitness testimony is notoriously, um, suspect or just not necessarily accurate in, in court cases we're talking about, but also think about like optical illusions, you know, how Mm. like you look at this thing, this optical illusion, and literally what your brain shows you is what it just thinks makes sense. It just shows you the version of the optical Uh. illusion that, and that's because our brain sees in patterns, like it it recognizes patterns. Like that's like how you operate is like seeing things. It's like faster to do that, right? Mm -hmm. It's metabolically more efficient for the brain Mm. to show you the optical illusion in an inaccurate way. It's not showing you what's really there because to show you what the way it really looks would take too much energy. Um, for you to actually see. And the brain is just like, why? Like, this isn't important. I'm just going to gloss it over. And I'm just going to show you on a pattern level, what makes sense for you to see what I like on an expectation level. So actually that, I don't think we've said this yet, but basically everything you ever see, hear, smell, taste, feel in your body, all of it is, um, it's a combination of both what might be called bottom up input. So that's all the sensory raw information coming in. They call that bottom up. It's a combination of that combined with top down. That's the, uh, that's the flip side term. And that would be everything that your brain remembers from your past experiences, from your memories, your brain's expectations, the context that you're in, in this moment, just all of that stuff is like, um, the brain uses all of that combined with whatever's coming in and in, in an input sensory manner. And it molds all of that together to create this representative whole. And that's why pain, that's why when it comes to pain, we talk, we've talked about this so many times on the podcast, but you know, when people feel what they would label as pain in their body, it's not, that's not just only from something like tissue damage, which would only be if you, if you boil pain down to tissue damage, which that's what 99% of the world does. That's everybody thinks if you hurt, if you feel pain, it's because you're damaged. That's mm-hmm. like a one-to-one. One-to-one, exactly. But what we want to do is take a step back and appreciate that um, something like tissue damage or um, nociception is kind of is the scientific term for sensory receptors that are designed to detect like higher threshold stimulus that could be da- uh, dangerous. <laughs> so that's the technical word is like nociception. But um, let's just say tissue damage for the for now. So tissue damage is only one input and it's only on that like sensory level. It's only one input into your brain. But at the same time, you have all of these other inputs and considerations, the context that you're in, your brain's expectations, your um, past, past history, yeah. past history. Totally. Like in my um, pain science for yogis course on the website, I use this example that I use. And I think I use this in Welcome to Your Brain, too. But if you picture someone out on a run, a trail run, and they trip and their knee hits a rock, 
right? So like there's a bang and there's there's some, say, tissue damage or nociception happening there. Um, the assumption, I think anybody who just hasn't studied this stuff, you would just think, well, if two different people tripped the same rate, the same pace, hit the same rock in the same moment, they're going to feel the same pain. Mm-hmm. That's like what you would just assume because we think pain and tissue damage are the same. But actually, consider someone out on a run and um, maybe they're being chased by a bear for their life. You know, the bear trying to catch them. If they fell and tripped and hit a rock, they most likely would feel no pain in the knee because the brain knows the context of their situation. They're being chased by a bear. They're like, the brain would just say, it's not helpful to you as an organism to slow you down and make you feel this pain. I need you to get out of out of the, uh, the bear's path. And so it keeps you running and not feeling that knee pain until you get somewhere that's safe. Like once you get inside and close the door, then maybe the brain would start to prioritize the knee damage and then maybe mm-hmm. you'd feel more pain. Um, so that's like one example of how two different people running in entirely different contexts could feel different pain. And there, I could go on and on about this example, but like, that's just, just to show that tissue damage and pain are not Oh, they're not always, like you said, they're not one-to-one, right? Pain in the body is influenced by so much. Or what's the, what's the kind of modern model of pain that takes in, you know, but maybe I'm not giving good enough hints to spark it in your mind. Pain is a uh, three things model. Bio. Oh, biopsychosocial. I wasn't doing a good job of like priming that in you. I'm like, what are you, what are you asking? (laughs) Yeah, what are you? Yes, but doesn't that kind of phenomenon? Don't totally. you think that kind of summarizes it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why I mean, I already knew all this pain side stuff when I learned about interoception, but that's why it just the interoception stuff made so much sense to me because I had this this background information of of the pain science stuff. But pain is one example, and it works like that with pain, but it works like that with basically everything about what you feel in your body, including emotions and stress and um anxiety and uh, depression and just all this stuff it's all wrapped up in um in this this like by i guess you could say biopsychosocial model i guess you could say that the brain shows you what it wants to show you what it thinks is important for you to understand in the moment for like survival or the health of your body basically the mm-hmm. technical term that i talk about in the course we don't have to get into here but it's allostasis right that dynamic process of your brain regulating everything about you to keep things like around homeostasis or that sense of balance. So anyway, um, that's kind of that's kind of what 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 underlies what we understand about pain today. Um, but it also underlies what we understand about emotion, and that's also why something we talk about on this podcast and what's I think really relevant one of the many things that's relevant for yogis is that that's why what you feel in your body is not necessarily reflective of what's actually going on in your body. That's Mm kind of like a core realization, right? So we, we already pointed that out with pain, like just because you might feel pain in an area doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean that you have any tissue. I mean, we know that like people can feel pain and have no damage. Or vice versa. Or vice versa. They can have damage and feel no pain or just some mix. And, you know, it depends on so many factors. But it's just like pain isn't the only realm where that happens. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's advisable when teaching, say, yoga or, or any type of movement, it can be advisable to not, like, assume what your students are feeling in their body. 
because everybody's different and they might have like completely different contexts and different, literally different experiences that their own brain is creating for them in their body. Just not being so, so definitive in um, what we think we can know about another person's body. Like it based on, on what they feel, you know, because feelings are so subjective. And, um, you know, maybe there's one point that I think is kind of important to address, and then we can move on to a little more about mindfulness and interoception, and then maybe we can kind of head toward wrapping up this conversation. But something that I think that uh, this conversation helps us see is, you know, Travis, how when people, when we first learn about pain science, one of the core tenets, at least I feel like, when you learn about pain science is we don't want to tell people that the pain they're experiencing in their body is like in their tissues. Yeah. Well, right. And you also don't want to tell them that it's in their head. That's like, the, right. That's, the, well, the that's always the second dichotomy. thing. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So We're not, not saying you're tissues, making no, it up. You're saying it's all in my head. But so when you say something's in your head, that's just saying like, you're making it up. That like the implication is you're making it up and that's, it's not in your head. It's an output of your brain, of your brain. Like pain is. So if, if when you say your pain is in your head, if you're implying they're making it up, that's incorrect. That's not true. Mm -hmm, like it's mm -hmm. a real perception. It's a real feeling, but it's outputted by the brain for someone to feel as in some area of their body. And that's why pain doesn't exist in the tissues. And you generally, as a pain science informed person, you don't want to try to give people the idea that their pain lives in their tissues, you know, or that it's super necessarily connected to damage, especially when we're talking long-term persistent pain chronic pain, kind of this more of this realm, because that's not helpful. You don't want people to imagine in their mind, like I have this pain in this area because I'm damaged. And it's just, um, you know, if it's not that the pain is there, it's just that like the damage is there. And every time I move, I'm creating this pain that my brain is receiving that that is the old outdated model of how the brain works. That's like the brain is reactive versus the brain is predictive. Mm -hmm. which that's the new model is like our brain is always predicting. But um, but anyway, the whole point is we don't want to tell people that their pain is in their tissues because instead we know that their pain is a an output of the brain. The brain has created it for them to feel somewhere in their body. And we know people who have persistent pain say it's like back pain. You know, it can change day to day. Like maybe maybe you feel better for a week and then you start to feel it again or Maybe if you try to point out like with your finger where the pain is, maybe in one moment it feels like it's here, but then you check it later and it's moved a little. Like that's because especially with persistent pain, it's 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 often not really connected to something tissue damage wise. It's more just this experience and that can be mapped or shifted in multiple, you know, around areas. Basically, it's not always pinned to one location because it's your brain doing it. So I just wanted to suggest that because this is why, and Travis, I think you're going to like this because we've talked about this a few times on the podcast and people have gotten really mad at us and angry at us for this, but we taught, we've talked about how emotions are not in your body and emotions are not like in your hip, you know, and you don't do pigeon pose to release your emotions because emotions are not, they're not a thing. Our brain is not reactive. It doesn't just like react to things. It's predictive. And um, just like with pain, emotions are the same thing. It's an output of your brain. It's a feeling that you experience in your body, but it's it's created by the brain. It doesn't live anywhere in your tissues. So in the same way that pain doesn't live in your tissues, and we know as pain science informed people, we don't want to tell people that, 
it's literally the same with emotions because emotions and pain are the same, like their foundation, the way that they're created for you to perceive. They're outputted by the brain as um, feelings in the body that we then label, you know, you label a certain feeling as pain, but you label another feeling as happiness or excitement or, or joy. And so emotions are like this mental category. We may feel it in an area of the body or feel it as some sort of body sense, because that's, that's this um, perception the brain constructs for you, but it's nothing that lives in your tissues. So all of that language in the yoga world about emotions being stored in the body, trauma being stored in the body, memories in the body, and that we release that through these like special formulas of yoga poses or through pigeon pose or whatever, all of that. And I'm just going to say it right here. And I talk about it at length in the actual course. That's all rooted in the outdated paradigm of how the brain works. And it's super widespread in the yoga world. Tons of teacher trainings teach this, you know, that like yoga is this healing practice for like releasing our emotions and our trauma, but it just doesn't work that way. That's not science-based. And like I said, we've talked about this a few times, but I think in kind of outlaying like interoception and like these newer insights about how the brain works, we can start to see, I think pain science has started to make its way in the yoga world a little bit, but this other aspect of like um, emotions and where they live and where they come from is is further behind pain science, you know, and that's why we have all this language in in um, the yoga world and also the world in general about like emotions being buried and stored in the body. But I think we just want to take a step back and realize some of us know about pain science, but haven't made that leap to also understand this about emotions. So it's like this bigger picture. Does that make sense? What I just said? Yeah, totally. It's a nice connection I mean, mm -hmm. it's if we if we understand it from the pain standpoint then yeah oh i see what you're everything saying that yeah. we take from the pain thing then we can carry Apply it over it to, to the emotions yeah totally totally thanks for saying that yeah i'm not i'm not sure honestly that i would have grasped as much as i have from the interception scientific literature i'm not sure that it would have been as intuitive for me if i hadn't learned about pain science mm -hmm. I think it's like a good doorway in, um, it doesn't have yeah, to be, you know, it's but a, it's more, it's a, well, it's a huge thing, <laughs> but it's a little, if it's, if pain science is subsumed by interoception, then yes. it's a, a smaller domain that you can tackle before that's right. that's a this great, bigger picture. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm happy that on my course, I have the pain science course. And now I have the welcome to your brain course. And I mentioned in the welcome to your brain course, like you, you, know, you might want to take the pain science course first. Um, and there's another course I have on the nervous system. That's more just like mm -hmm. structure and basic function of the nerve. And that's another good one to just have under your belt. They're not required and you can still glean a ton from the course, not taking those, but they're just, it's good to have that background information. Totally. So Travis, um, I'm, ho I'm wondering, I want to say we're shifting gears, but it's not really quite, it's all related, but I thought we could, um, maybe just kind of end our conversation with, we've already been talking about yoga and mindfulness practices throughout this conversation, but just get a little more concrete on yeah. the connection between interoception and, um, what is often called like mindfulness or contemplative practices, uh, and yoga is one such practice. Um, but there are, of course, many others like Tai Chi, meditation, um, somatic-based practices tend to be considered in this category. So like Feldenkrais, um, Alexander technique, things like that. 
Uh, oh, and also um, a body scan is another very common like mindfulness technique. Do you know what a body scan when is? When you say that? body scan, is that like progressive relaxation? I think it's often used in that context. I don't think it always has to be about relaxing, but I think progressive relaxation is an example of a body scan. Yeah. I think. Well, so no, do you I'll, mean maybe it's also sometimes at a, the beginning of a meditation practice, you might like start from the crown of your head. Yes. And just go down to the toes one by one. Totally. Just, you, whether sensing or relaxing. With progressive relaxation, mm -hmm. you tend to tense the muscle and mm -hmm. then relax one mm -hmm. by one. But you could also just sense. You could just sense. Yeah. Or notice. Or notice. Like lie on your back, close your eyes, and then someone leads you through you know, like feel your two shoulder blades on the floor mm -hmm. and does mm -hmm. one make more contact than the other? Like all these like very inquisitive, you know, rather than it should feel this way. You should be symmetrical, right? Remember there's our whole episode on symmetry too. Just again, I'm just struck by like how all this is really, these themes are so interwoven and everything, but yeah, uh, but like, like a body scan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, a body scan isn't about like assess your body and find all your imbalances and then correct them. It's more just like in an open, non-judgmental manner, just really scan and feel all these different parts and just, just um, accept them, you know, like mm -hmm. notice them for how they're arranged and nothing needs to be fixed. There's no judgment. It just is. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, um, and that's why a body scan is, is a mindfulness practice because mindfulness has many, you know, many definitions um, like, you know, our last episode on does yoga count as exercise? And we listed like four exercise definitions and there are so many more. There are a ton mm -hmm. of definitions for what mindfulness is as well, but like they generally kind of have some overlap. And I, I like this one that I pulled, uh, that mindfulness is purposefully paying attention to experiences in the present moment in a non-judgmental way. Mm. And you can do that through very various vehicles, uh, like we just kind of listed here, but that's like, and yoga is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, practicing moving your body. So it uses movement rather than just like a seated still meditation, mm -hmm. but it's still a vehicle for paying attention in a non judgmental way, just observing and noticing how you feel your body as you're moving through these shapes that a yoga teacher is, is instructing. So we know from tons of research that um, mindfulness practices in general come with a ton of benefits. Uh, and some of them include like a ton, but some of them include like cognitive performance. So cognitive performance, um, attentional capacities. So they improve our ability to just pay attention and sustain attention and focus longer. So we're less distracted, uh, decreased self-judgment. We can become like less judgment of ourselves, uh, increased compassion and pro-social behavior. Although um, Caro in the forum on my website did post a, a recent study that was questioning mindfulness and its connection to pro-social behavior. This is just a side note. And if Caro is listening. Shout you out know, to Caro. Yeah, exactly. And we had a whole, we had a conversation about it. But anyway, you know, like this, that one maybe is depending on context, a little questionable. Um, but mindfulness practices can reduce stress. They can um, improve depression, anxiety, and other clinical conditions. So there's just like a whole host of benefits that mindfulness practices, including yoga, have. Mm -hmm. We all, we kind of know this, you know, but um, I think the question is, and why this matters for introception and what in, in the greater context of this, this conversation is, the question is like, well, how, you know, like how do mindfulness practices give us all those benefits? And mm -hmm. in my experience, and I think in yours too, Travis, 
the one of the most common explanations is that, um, or at least something that people believe plays a role, is that mindfulness practices improve interoception. Right? They like quote improve quote interoception. Yeah. Well, I think now that we're an hour in, it's like, well, mm -hmm. what the heck does that mean? Because <laughs> Like, how does one improve that? And what does, what does that look like? Right. Thank you for reflecting that. Exactly. Yeah. But don't you see how it takes? And this is just, I don't know, like an hour or whatever, but you, you, it's like, we have to kind of understand all this stuff or at least have a working, you know, basic understanding to then take a step back and realize like a statement, like a yoga practice improves introception. It's like, we actually kind of need to know more about what we're actually talking about. Yeah. What do we statement. mean by interoception? Okay, well, we thought it was one thing. Now we understand it to be way more. Now that and now that we understand it to be way more all-encompassing, well, what does it mean to improve that yeah. sort of? Yeah. What does it mean? So here's the thing: um, there have been multiple research studies that have that have suggested this. I'm not sure that it's totally conclusive, but it's certainly strongly suggested in the research that mm -hmm. mindfulness practices actually do not improve your actual ability to sense your objective bodily sensations. Damn. They don't improve that. So check this out. There's this well-known um, well study that's highly cited, uh, Kalsa et al. 2008. And in this study, it, um, it took groups of two groups of meditators, one were, were like Tibetan Buddhist and one was Kundalini yoga meditators. Mm -hmm. And it compared compared both of those groups to a group of non meditators. And it, uh, it assessed their ability to detect their heart rate. Because detecting like the ability to sense your own heart rate is like a classic measure of interoception in research studies. So it basically uh, measured these three groups abilities to detect their heart rate or heartbeat. Um, and then it also asked all of them how well they thought they could detect their heartbeat. A heartbeat de detection is kind of the overarching term. So it hooked them up to a heart rate monitor. Yeah. But they didn't, they weren't privy to what that was. So That's if right. they were sitting, you know, and it measured out 65 beats per minute, and then they were just told to, okay, during that quiet period, what yeah. do you think either count, I guess count. not what do you think your heart rate is, yeah, it's count, count your heartbeat mm -hmm. and like, you can't put your two fingers no, at your you carotid or at your wrist to, to actually take your own pulse. That's it's just right. like, I'm, I'm to trying to feel that. That's thing. exactly right, Travis. So yeah. That, that was the comparison. That's called heartbeat tracking. And um, when, when you ask people to close their eyes and just count the number of heartbeats in a certain time, like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and usually they'll do that over like, say, 15 trials, and then they average that. And that's like mm. how they kind of determine, you know, um, someone's sensing of their own heart rate. And then there's another way to detect your heart rate, which is called heart rate discrimination. And that's generally where the researchers will play like a tone at a certain interval and then you're supposed to listen and then say whether you think that tone is in line with your heartbeat or whether it's not there are Whoa. two different ways of, of assessing someone's own sense of their heartbeat okay but collectively it's just called heartbeat detection like in the as a mm -hmm. collective term but those are two different measures and i think the um oh i can't remember now i was just reading it but one of them is considered a little more reliable than the other 
I shouldn't say which because I kind of forget. But in any case, in this Khalsa study of the meditators versus the non-meditators, they did exactly as you described. They measured their actual physiological heart rate as measured by a machine external to their body. And then they measured their own sense of what their heartbeat was. And they measured how confident they felt that they were at feeling their own heart heartbeat. And that's that's the the exactly the real crux. So this is where we start to realize and break apart that um we've kind of defined interoception as like this really much bigger category than um we generally learn if if all we learn is that it's like your sense of your internal organ. It's like so much more. We've also defined how important it is in like everything about how you feel and experience in your body. But when we when it comes down to actually measuring interoception, it gets complicated. And um, in the in the research in general on interoception, previous to say 2015 or so, the term interoception wasn't always well defined in studies. They weren't really they weren't really defining whether they were talking about people's ability to accurately sense their actual physio physiology or whether they were talking about people's just subjective sense that they could sense their physiology, right? And those are two different things. And so that's why this, this paper came out in 2015. It's Garfinkel et al. 2015. And uh, it seems they've kind of established the standard that it seems like subsequent research abide, tends to abide by. But they've um, suggested that that researchers use this three-pronged model of what interoception can be, like three different aspects of interoception, and that there is interoception accuracy. That's like the technical term. That would be uh, just that would just be the your ability to sense uh, to accurately sense your actual heartbeat. So hmm. if you're measured that's up, that's one example. Yes, exactly. Yes, easy to measure, and the the one that's most often used. A hundred. You're totally right. Thanks for mentioning that. Yes. Yeah, so heart rate is probably the most often used uh, measure for something like like these um, interoception categories. But there are a bunch of other types of measurements too. Like you can measure um, breath, how well people sense their breath, how well people sense how full their stomachs are. That's called gastric sensitivity. Ooh. You can test how well they sense uh, proprioception. Like there's um, there's a study that I have to talk about here where they tested people's angle of their elbow. Like they positioned mm. one elbow at a certain angle and then they couldn't see that side and then they had to take the other elbow and position it what they felt was like the elbow they couldn't see. So that's like, and remember proprioception these days is considered inter part of interoception. So there's a lot, a lot of things that can be measured, but heart rate is kind of the classic one. Mm -hmm. So anyway, there's interoceptive accuracy which is your actual ability to, to sense your actual objective physiology. And then there's interoceptive sensibility. This is the second prong of interoception, which is how well you think you sense your, um, your physiology. So if, if I asked you, Travis, like, um, you know, close your eyes and measure your heartbeat. And then I measure your heartbeat with a machine. And then you tell me, you know, how many counts. And then I compare yeah. that to how many there were. That would be a measure of how accurate you were. Right. And that's interoceptive accuracy. So you could be good or bad at that. But then you could say, well, now that you've given me your guess, how strongly, how confident are you in that guess? How good do you think you are at this task or exactly. in general, how good do you think that your interoception is? And that's what um, they often do. And that's what they did in this CALSA study. They asked them after they counted, they're like, now, how confident are you that you were right? Mm -hmm. And that's their subjective sense. That's, that's measuring their, how good they think they are basically. 
Mm-hmm. So you could tell me, and usually it's like on a scale. I think I think they do it on a scale, like a sure. number scale or something. Yeah. But you would tell um, me how confident. I'm a ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, I'd nailed that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or you could say I have no idea. I couldn't feel it at all, and that might be oh, like yeah. a zero. You know, there's that. Or maybe you're just something like I think I'm okay at it, but yeah, you know, five. and yeah, exactly a five. So they do that over like say 15 trials. They measure the actual beats. They measure how confident the people were. And so they're measuring two things that way. They're measuring accuracy and they're measuring confidence or or subjective sense. Mm -hmm. So we could call, we could consider that objective interoception, which would be accuracy. And then subjective interoception is just how good someone thinks they are. And they call that sensibility. Yeah, they call that sensibility. Exactly, interoceptive sensibility. Mm -hmm. So in the CALSA study, um, the meditators, they all thought they were better at sensing their heartbeat. They had sure. higher confidence, um, but there was no difference in accuracy between the meditators and the non-meditators. Mind blown. Totally. I can't, yeah, I was just like, what? Because all you ever hear, all you ever hear, I mean, not that people talk about this a ton, but all I've ever heard is that yoga and mindfulness practices and meditation improve your ability to sense your body, right? Which would be your objective your your, your interoceptive accuracy that's the assumption i think we all make Mm because first of all we probably haven't we don't understand we don't realize it's such a complex topic or that there's distinction between actual raw sensation and your experience like those are different right input output Mm -hmm. sorry i feel like i'm I'm like talking over you but um there's like the raw sensation and as we talked about earlier that's objective that's the input in and then what you actually feel and sense in your body that's the output out that's a construction that your brain presents for you Mm -hmm. so you might be able to close your eyes and and hear and feel physically like a heart beating but that's not necessarily your actual heart beating because it's your brain's representation of that for you and you actually can never I don't, I mean, unless, no, I was going to say maybe someone could record your heart and pay it, play it back to you, but then it would be past. It wouldn't be in real time. I don't know if you ever could. Maybe, maybe you could in some medical context, but anyway, I'm kind of going off on the tangent. So the meditators in this study, they all thought that they could detect the heartbeat. They were more confident. They were like, oh, I have good interoception. I can sense my heart, but they actually were not any more accurate than the non-meditators, but they had higher confidence than the non-meditators. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's like, it seems that the mindfulness practice heightens, heightens people's or these meditators um, confidence in their abilities. It makes them think that they know their body better, but they don't yeah. actually know their body better on an objective level. How crazy is that? Now, I mentioned that the Garfinkel 2015 paper was was proposing that interoception be looked at, at it as a three-pronged model. What's the third way? <laughs> so I said the first and the second. And the third way is is termed interoceptive awareness. And this is where it gets a little trippy for me uh, in a good way. But interoceptive awareness is like the correlation between or um, yeah. between the other two. It's like how um, how well does your confidence predict your accuracy? Yeah. So does you that make could sense be, what I just said? You could actually be accurate and you could be confident and then they would match well and be highly correlated. That's you right. Could, be accurate, but not know that you were accurate. Say, you know, I, okay, I'm going to guess that my heartbeat was 65, but I'm not so confident in it. And then it turns out that your heartbeat was 65. Or yeah, we, mm-hmm. you could be um, inaccurate and overconfident. So uh-huh. like you guessed 65, your heartbeat was 105, but you were supremely confident that you were right. Or you could be 
uh, not accurate and low confidence. So That's right. There, there are situations where they match well, and then mm-hmm. you know you 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 could you're you're correctly you're correct that you're good. You're correct that mm-hmm. your accuracy is good, or you could be the correct that your accuracy is bad, exactly. or you could be incorrect that your accuracy is good or bad. That's right. You put that really well. Exactly. So interceptive awareness is like that. Oh, it's um, it's like a it's metacognition is what what they call yeah. it. It's like, are you how aware are you that you're aware? It's like, can you take a step back and rise above it? And can you accurately wow. sense how accurate you are? Isn't it crazy? Right. So mm-hmm. that and exactly as you outlined, there are all these different possibilities. But someone who is just like, I don't have very good interoception, and then they measure you and you actually don't, those people would actually have good interoceptive awareness because they were right. aware that they're not aware. Yeah. You know? So it kind of so when you ask the question of does yoga or do mindfulness practices in general improve interoception? That's a big it's it's a complex question. Right. Is it improving interoceptive accuracy? interoceptive sensibility or interoceptive awareness. That's right. So um, which is it? What it, what, and actually we, we really do need to wrap up our conversation. So we're going to be well, pretty this quick is here. The, this is the crux of it. Yeah, totally. Okay. So what it is, is um, t- generally, and of course there's, you know, there's lots of details. I'm just kind of summarizing this, summarizing this, but generally mindfulness practices, they work on the subjectivity level. They improve interoceptive sensibility, which that's the subjective domain. They improve our ability to feel like we can feel our body. To turn us into the monks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, to turn us into, exactly. But that doesn't mean that we're actually getting better. Accurately. Or that we're getting more aware of our awareness. It just means that we're subjectively, we think we're getting better. That's right. It just means that we think we're getting better. It doesn't mean that we are actually getting better. And in the Kalsa study, the non-meditators, they all, you know, um, they were underconfident, like they underrated their confidence and they were actually, um, they actually performed better than they thought they did. Hmm. So uh, yeah, but then the meditators were just like overconfident and then collectively they all performed about the same on an accuracy measure. Yeah. Measure. So this is interesting. I think it's good for us to realize. And I think it's so just to me, it's so related to the pain science stuff. It's like we get so caught up, I think, sometimes in wanting everything to be super specific. Like it's always comes down to this one thing. If you have pain, it's that you have tissue damage in this one place. Um, if you're sensing your body, it's because you're specifically sensing an actual thing happening in your body, you know, whether it's pain, whether it's just um, my heartbeat, my stomach, fullness, like mm-hmm. all this stuff. Um, like, I think we have these ideas that we can be so specific, but actually that's not really how the brain works. Things are just, you know, um, constructed and displayed for you in this really collective sense. Everything is integrated and it's just much more like general and bigger picture than like specific. So I got to tell us about one final thing here, which makes it kind of brings all of this together in my opinion, which is that it's pretty suggested in the research that mindfulness practices don't improve your ability to actually sense your actual physiology and sensations, but they do improve your ability to feel like you do. So they improve subjective interoception, but not um, objective interoception. Okay. So we might be like, well, then what's the point of doing mindfulness? Like, why does it even matter? I thought what was important was to be able to actually sense my heart rate better or my whatever Mm. it is. 
Mm -hmm. I think we think that's what's important. But what we also know from research, there's this great study, Fer Ferenczi et al. 2019. And um, they, the question was, do body-related sensations make us feel better? That's the title of it. And um, what, they, what the study found was that subjective well-being is only associated with the subjective sense of in, the subjective aspect of interoception. So what they did is they took subjects, I think it was like 124, and they, through questionnaires, they assessed their well-being. You know, it's like kind of psychological well-being. How stressed are you? How, how good do you feel? So well-being, they assessed that. And then they assessed their interoceptive sensibility or just their subjective sense of how good their interoception is. And then they sensed their interoceptive accuracy. And they did that by three measures in that study. They did heartbeat, they did proprioception, and they did the gastric, the how full you are in your stomach via this like water drinking test. Mm. And um, what they found was that well-being was only correlated with subjective interoception, but what? it wasn't correlated with, with um, objective. Wow. So, so yeah. I guess we don't, that doesn't mean correlation is not causation. So mm -hmm. we don't know. So we know that yoga mindfulness practices increase our, interoceptive sensibility interoceptive sensibility is correlated with mm -hmm. well-being mm -hmm. but right. doesn't necessarily say that if we increase our interoceptive sensibility that will increase our well-being yeah i think you're right that it doesn't say that that's um, what we would hope would be the yeah. case but we don't we don't have their data we would need to study that in a experimental way to show the cause to actually check well to actually test some well-being yeah because we definitely know that mindfulness practices do improve subjective interoception but i guess the question would be do they also improve subjective well-being is that what you're yeah saying? yeah well yeah and you have to like i don't even really understand the statistics but you'd have to do some sort of statistical technique to show that the because mindfulness practices do increase subjective well-being right but right. is, it be, is it because, is it maybe mediated is the right word or moderated? Oh, uh, yeah. My, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my statistics professors would be. Oh, you're so funny. Uh, yeah. Like Travis. With me. Yeah. But, but is, is, is that, is that like, okay, I'm the person and is my, is my wellness or well-being going up in equal parts with my interoceptive sensibility? Right. I'm not like, sure. Is that the thing that has to happen for my wellness to get Im improve or not? In the interoception and mindfulness research, it seems to be suggested that like mindfulness practices improve well-being because of the subjective interoception, because of oh. their impact on that. Well. That's like what they seem to suggest. That it's not about the specific mindfulness practice per se. It doesn't matter if you meditate, if you do yoga, right, if you do, yeah. it's just about paying attention to your body in a mindful way. It's like this vehicle for, you know, um, the more that you can better sense your body. And again, it's not necessarily objective. It's just your own body signals. No, it's, it's, uh, it's not really better sensing your body. It's thinking that you're better sensing your body. That's right. That's right. It's thinking that it, that's exactly right, Travis. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that can help crazy part. with things like emotional regulation. I mean, that's, you know, like, um, mindfulness practices, they help us really tune in more to like the sensory, or at least we call it sensory input coming in, but it's, 
it's it's how your brain is presenting for you what you're feeling but like we focus more on like the bottom up like you close your eyes or if it's yoga maybe your eyes aren't closed but you're feeling what you feel in your body in the present moment and you're tuning into more of that bottom up side of things and just becoming non-judgmentally aware of that and that seems to be what can be one of the ways that mindfulness practices are really helpful is they help they help place a little more precedence on input coming in and more presence in the moment on that versus all this cognitive stuff from the top down like trying to I don't know, reason things out or distract ourselves if it's pain. There are just all these um, different strategies people can use. Uh, there's this great study by Guard at L2012 where they looked at meditators and non-meditators and they gave them the same electrical stimulus, which was a painful stimulus, the same. And the meditators felt that the stimulus was equally as intense as the non-meditators, so equally intense, but less painful, less unpleasant. Sorry, that's the right word. Oh, wow. The meditators felt, they still felt the the electrical stimulation to the same intensity, which mm -hmm. if you remember um, affect and valence and arousal, maybe that's arousal, which is stimulation. They felt the same intensity, but they felt decreased unpleasantness, perhaps because through their mindfulness and meditation practice, they had been able to be a little more like just less quick to judge what they feel in their body and like that's good that's bad they can like take a little step back be a little wow. more reflective and just i can sense the sense i can perceive the feeling without needing to label it good or bad Amazing. so yeah that's a great study as well and i talk about that in the course as well but so just as an example of um you know ways that mindfulness can be helpful is they they help put us in touch with more of the bottom up processing that happens in the nervous system, maybe make that a little more of a priority so that in life, uh, we become a little less reactive, like knee jerk reactive to things that happen. Um, you know, you might think of someone who's just always reacting and just like, maybe that's a little emotionally immature or emotionally not so adaptive to just be always pulled around by you know, your experiences and instantly that's good, that's bad. But if you can actually take a step back and have this space between what happens and your reaction, there's a little more time for reflection. And to sum all of this up so this, this episode doesn't get too long, I think that's what um, yoga and mindfulness practices can do well. And through that ability that it helps us feel like we connect to our body better, like sub increasing the subjective sense, that's what I believe can help imp um, improve and enhance wellness. <laughs> Anyway, uh, that's kind of a rambly summary, but does no, it I thought that was good. You thought so? <laughs> Thank yeah. you. I'm a little sensitive to this getting too long, so I kind of feel like maybe we should. We're done. Yeah, can we? Can we? <laughs> did I did I summarize it in a way that sort of made sense? I got it. If people are more are interested, um, for sure consider. Like you said, there's a seven day free trial on my web. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to make this like a big promotional thing, but literally in the yoga world i've other than yogic physio as i was telling you before we got on yogic physio oliver crossley he's a great physiotherapist and yoga teacher in australia i think he's in australia we love him um and he's the only person in the yoga world who i'm aware of who's talking about some he talks about pr the predictive brain which kind of underlies a lot of i didn't talk about that too much today but that underlies a lot of this he's the only other person i've seen talk about anything similar to any of this so I feel like this is pretty unique in the yoga world. And that's why I'm not trying to be self-promotional, but if you want to learn more, consider the course on my website that you could take for free with the seven day free trial. I highly recommend it. 
I did not know that you had looked at it. I'll have to ask you more about that later. Um, anyway, does that sound good, Travis? Did we kind of cover this huge and weighty topic? We did it. <laughs> Thanks for asking such great questions and being here with me, even though it was Thanks mostly me for telling you being stuff. such an expert. Well, um, well, I guess you're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you found this interesting and for learning more. You know, take that course. Um, there's, you know, and all the references in there. There's so many references you can dive into to learn more. So it's all there for you. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at interoception, emotions, pain, and yoga. Remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in any of the memberships on my website, including the continuing education membership that gives you access to my Welcome to Your Brain course that we've been referencing throughout this episode today. Also remember that PODCAST30 will give you 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you found this discussion to be of value, you could really support us by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm-hmm.